present and be purposeful in what you're trying to do. And my dad used to say, hard on the issues, easy on the people. Life is hard. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to work for anybody else. And the only place that like success is before work is in the dictionary. Guys, welcome back. Another episode of Business Untitled. I got my man Mel Carter and Dave Barry with me again. We're pretty excited. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Wes Edens was my partner at Fortress. Let me say a few things about Wes. He was born in Montana. He's a cowboy. He's a baseball player. He's a skier. Uh, but more than that, I've never met a guy, and I've met a lot of people, that has come up with more ideas in his own mind, bouncing off other people, and kind of sits there and says, ah, cell towers. Let's buy all the cell towers. Or natural gas. Or the Bucks. Uh, he owns the Bucks. He owns Aston Villa. Uh, he founded Fortress, uh, which was the first private equity company, hedge fund company ever to go public, where I was a partner. Um, he is literally a true entrepreneur. Not everything's worked, uh, but a lot has worked. And so we're gonna we're gonna dive into his life a little bit today and see if you guys can learn a little bit uh, of his pixie dust. Uh, maybe you'll get an ounce of gold. <laughs> There's an inside joke you'll get later. So Wes, tell us about yourself. Born in Montana. Yeah, so, uh, well, thanks for having me, Mike. You know, uh, Mike is my favorite partner of all time for lots of, lots of reasons that I'll go into. But uh, it's great to be with him and Dave Barry. We're all, we're all partners in our, our venture out west. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Montana, and uh, uh, a conventional way to grow up if you're in Montana, you know, grew up on, on, a, on a ranch. Um, you know, I, the place I grew up, at the time I grew up, there was no media. So there was literally two TV stations, and they were both lousy. So as I say, when, as I, when I was a kid, your choices were A, read a book, or B, go outside. And I did a fair bit of both, actually. And I, and I actually feel like uh, in certain respects, it, is, uh, it, it was very, very important to me as a kid because it just you had to come up with independent thoughts because no one was going to come up with them for you. And, uh, and, and also, you know, people think that there's uh, you know, a lack of sophistication in places like that because people are not – uh, exposed to a lot of diversity, they're not exposed to a lot of challenges in the conventional societal way. But actually, I found the opposite. The people are very open-minded, very liberal, actually, in spirit for the most part. And so it was a great, a great place to grow up. Very cool. I'm curious. We talk a lot about, like, the moment we were talking about, oops, sorry, we were talking about it with Mel um, and our last guest about when you went from kind of working for the man to... Like your, you know, really like Fortress, I guess, was really where you made that leap oh, yeah, right? when you founded Fortress in a sec. Yeah. Would that be correct? Yeah. Mm. Probably before that when you did your Larry Fink. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I so I, um, look, when I, when I grew up in Montana, I didn't know Wall Street from Pine Street. I'd never, I literally didn't know a soul that was east of the Mississippi River, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and I came, you know, I went to, I got out of college in Oregon and I went down to work for a savings and loan in, in uh, California, met a guy down there. And he said, you know, we, we were having, you know, pizza one night and he said, you know, a guy like you should really think about Wall Street. And I'm like, why do you say that? And he said, I just think you'd be a good fit for it. This guy around. Is a How old group. are you? I was probably 21 years old. Wow, that's crazy. And so, uh, and so I, I went and I met the guy, uh, this guy, Jay Kellett, if he's still out there, that uh, was the, ran the San Francisco office for, uh, for Merrill Lynch. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, started talking about Wall Street and about this and that. And one thing led to another. And I ended up back in New York. And... 
You know, and I, I'd say I knew immediately that I didn't really want to work for anybody, to mm-hmm. be honest. I, I didn't mind working with people, but mm-hmm. I'm not really a great person to work for somebody. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I was on Wall Street primarily with, with Lehman Brothers, and I had a lot of success there. But, I, you know, I ultimately got into kind of a dispute with the guy that, that I worked for and got fired. So I went mm-hmm. from being like, you know, one of the highest paid guys in the firm and maybe the youngest partner in the firm getting fired all in the space of about eight months. Wow. And, uh, and I walked home and, you know, Mike Mortera that, uh, that worked at Goldman that Mike uh, Novo knew really well was the first guy to call me. Mm-hmm. So I got home and there was like, I don't know, 100 messages on my answer machine because I'd walked home, right? Because <laughs> you still had answer machine. Uh-huh. Wait, all people wanting to hire you? Uh, you know, it was people that was, it, there was a shock to people. They didn't know what it was. So the, the very, the, literally the first guy on the, uh, on the, on the machine was Mike Mortera, and he said, ah, you know, Wes, uh, heard you got fired today. I got fired myself one time. It sucks, but it's the best thing ever happened to you. Call me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I had this uh, piece of construction paper there, and I just I started writing out, like, all the people that had called me, you know, and it was like, and I still have this piece of paper, and it's like, you know, it, it kind of went down one side and the other, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to work for anybody else. And so, uh, you know, I had known Ralph uh, Schlostein at uh, Lehman Brothers, right? He was the president of uh, BlackRock. Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, talking to people about going to work, but I didn't really want to go to work for somebody else, to be honest. And, and you know, and so uh, Larry uh, Fink had just started, and he and Ralph and other partners had just started BlackRock. So at one point, um, Blackstone, BlackRock, and what became Fortress were on two floors of one building on oh, Oregon. Wow. Hmm. And so when I say that my office is there, they actually converted a, a like a janitor's office. That was my office. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> the truth, right? And that's what so it started. And so I, I went to work there with Larry and, and you know, and, and turned down uh, money to go back to work on Wall Street, significant, you know, uh, opportunities. But I just I didn't want to work for somebody. And so Larry basically said, uh, I think it was $175,000 salary and 50% of a fund that had not even raised. And we had no idea how hard that was. Mm-hmm. That's ignorance is probably bliss in that case. But, uh, you know, went about it and, you know, a year and a half later, you know, raised this fund and that's how it all started. And we did that fund. And at the end of it, I said, now nah, I really want to take the next step. And that's how it ended up at Fortress. So you're at Fortress. We joined, Pete Brigger and I joined. There's about 40 people, but I never remember sitting around with Wes, and we're at a diner, and Wes says, you know what? I think if you build a business and you build a business and you build a business, uh, we'll be able to put them together and sell them for a lot more than three. And I was like, that's my line. <laughs> I, I had been given that line. So we had relatively similar lines. And so we literally created the idea of Fortress. Well, he already had built Fortress, so P- Pete and I joined in. How long right. into you opened the for- Fortress? We opened in 1998, and these guys showed up in 2001. Yeah. yeah. And so they had they had 50 mm-hmm. people. They had 900 million assets. And that sounds small relative to what Fortress became, but by far the hardest 900 million of assets are the first 900 million of assets. True. The hardest 40 people to hire are the first 40 people to hire. But we literally wrote our partnership agreement on a napkin and didn't really – Credentialize it. That's crazy. Eighteen months, two years. Well, no longer. Honestly, we so we took the company public in two thousand and seven. 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 And we didn't have a partnership agreement. It's it's one of those things where you know we talk right. about like that's a good partnership, right? And we're all still yeah. really good friends. And so Mike, myself, Pete, and Randy, and you know Rob Kaufman, other guys were partners yeah. as well. But it's really the three of us that ran these businesses, and we did not have a a signed partnership agreement. Mm-hmm. It had I didn't no real dispute over it, to be honest. I'm not, not a single one. I've never been a detail guy. So, that worked <laughs> <in my mind. laughs> so Mike told us what that moment felt like on uh, 
I think like episode one, and he probably told me 600 times at this point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what did that moment feel like for you? Because that was, it was like a historic thing, right? It was the first time like four or five guys became a billionaire and one day went public. What did that feel like for you in that, like, what was the surreal moment? It was uh, oh shit moment. It was like, was he just calm? Like, what, what was it? Uh, Mike said he ran around like, Topless yeah. down <laughs> Wall Street. That's just another Tuesday night. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it, it was uh, it was a moment. I thought, uh, in hindsight, it was not the best decision we made to yeah. do it. But like, it was the best of intentions. And I and I was probably the biggest proponent of it. So if it didn't work out perfectly, it's probably my fault more than anybody else's. But I thought it was sensible to get access to capital. I thought that also one of the real challenges in, in investment firms is that you know the the best assets in the company go up and down the elevators every night. And so if you could find a way to kind of bind them in and make it all work, in, in theory, I think that that was a, a good idea. And I think in practice for a couple of other firms, it has really worked out well. I think yeah. that, you know, it seems like the Blackstone guys have done phenomenally. And I think that, you know, Apollo has done phenomenally. Yeah. For us, you know, we became much more of a coalition of businesses than we were an integrated right. firm. Yeah. And that probably in, the, in hindsight, that's just what it was. And it wasn't it wasn't really disputes and it wasn't really, uh, you know, personality changes. Just it didn't. We had really separate businesses. Yeah. You know, they didn't integrate. We also and, had and, th three guys that all could sell, but also lo also loved investing in their own styles. And if you look at the other models, Carlisle, Black, Blackstone, Apollo, their chief guy had lots of skills, but spent all his time raising capital and selling the whole firm. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to do that if you're going to run a private equity firm or a credit firm yeah. or a macro fund. Yeah. So. And, and also, like, not to – but it also came right into the 0708 like, collapse. So the timing, yeah. no, no fault of your own, but was really, really rough. Just yeah, we, we, let me give yeah. Wes a little credit here. When we went public, yeah. Wes's private equity track record from the time he started at BlackRock to the time we went public – was so breathtaking that everywhere I went, so Wes and Pete were doing the road show in in uh, New York and in the U.S. And I, me and Randy, uh, uh, Rob Kaufman were doing the road show in Europe and the Mideast. And everywhere I went, people was like, is he really the next Warren Buffett? Oh, is he really? His compounded track record was somewhere between 35 and 40 percent over like 14 years. Now, it wasn't all realized, which... We wish, yeah. it had, we wish it had been realized, yeah. but it was this staggering track record. And so we went in, Wes did, we all did, with this unbelievable sense of confidence because, yeah. you know, you get a lot of confidence from past results. And yeah. it wasn't three years. It was well, whenever you started your first fund. Yeah, yeah it's 1994. Yeah. yeah. So and, and it worked out brilliantly, to be honest, right? Like on the IPO, yeah. it, everything was good until yeah. – Right, oh seven, oh eight, and yeah, we probably should have sold more stock and put more like liquidity on balance sheet. There's there's things about you know, I think uh, certainly Mike and I probably are our, our biggest you know flaws are being too optimistic. Uh -huh. Right, <laughs> doesn't show that. But like, right, he, he, like did really well during that period, but it, you know, it 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 didn't have a lot of time. So we went public in February, I think, in two thousand and seven. Yeah, yeah. And the world really blew apart in June. Yeah, right. I mean, when that first Bear Stearns fund, you know, failed, a mortgage yeah. fund, and this thing started on rail. Everyone says two thousand eight, but two thousand seven, that summer, that's when you could really see yeah. the first signs of real disorder. And, and perspective, you guys went public at like eighteen or something, that's and right. it went as high as thirty or low. 30s, 35, right? And Wes then, bought a share at 35. Yeah, and he was the CEO, and I was like, but thank God he's got to buy that share. <laughs> but then it 
like basically went down to three, right? I'm saying like in that, right? Yeah. So what, right? It was really like quite a roller coaster ride at that point in time. How did, uh, talk about that a little bit, like what it felt like. I'm sure it's, you know, yeah. like, like labor, you probably forgot most of it or can't recall it, but no, no, I in mean, a sense. I recall, I recall every bit of it. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, so when the market went sideways, so 2008 was a very, very difficult year. And, and uh, we didn't spend a lot of time trying to run the company because we were trying hard to run our own businesses, yeah. right? So yeah. You think about it, there's kind of two jobs. There's the job of running the company, the job of running your own investment mm-hmm. business. And we were pretty full on in the other. Um, if I ever write a book, and I don't know that I would, but if I do write a book, um, I would call it 49 Sundays. Because in 2008, I worked every day of the year except for three days. That's crazy. And, and, it, was, and it was by necessity. You know, when mm-hmm. I say worked, I'm not talking about going to the office for like two hours on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. I mean, every day we worked, you know, tirelessly to get stuff. Because we, you know, we had exposure in these different uh, businesses. We, had, we were short uh, financing. So we had, again, probably a little bit in hindsight too optimistic on some of the financial stuff. And it all worked out. We didn't lose any companies of bankruptcy. We didn't have any restructurings and whatever else, right? But it was um, it was some period of time, a very yeah. cathartic period of time. Right. Two, two stories I want to highlight of that time. I'll never forget. We were sitting around, and Wes said, guys, imagine we just fell out of a boat in freezing cold water. And we can swim to the boat, but if it floats away, we're going to die. So we've got to pick the right angle to swim. So let's be really goddamn careful about and d- decide together which angle we're going to swim at. Because we catch the boat, we can live. And if we can live, we can regrow. But if we die, we die. Let's not fucking die. And so like, that was a great metaphor because it was literally at That's that point. Like, this is like, you know, December of 08. You're like, ah. And, you know, we swam to the boat. Wes had one bullet left in his gun of his private equity fund five. One bullet. About $100 million to spend, and he probably had one of the best investments of his life Yeah, uh, buying, what was AI? It was AIG's. AIG's uh, financial, uh, financial consumer service services yeah. business, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, became like bought, a 15-bagger, 20-bagger. Yeah. yeah, I paid $124 million for 80%. Of it. I left them 20%. I could have bought the whole thing, but they were actually really, really good guys. I said, well, you yeah. guys should keep 20%, uh-huh. and we'll see. And I think I eventually sold it for three point seven billion dollars. Wow! So thirty seven million. Span of what? So it was. What's that? In a span of what? A couple years. years. What was the company called? I forget. One main is what we 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 renamed it. What was the heck? I can't remember the name. But um, you're right. I actually back against the wall. What was that? Getting run over by the elephants. Got up with the gun. Pulse. <laughs> yeah. Well, this might be a rapper from the hood. <laughs> I, 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 knew that, uh, I knew that I had to have a pretty clear mind about what I was doing yeah. and uh, made this investment. And I was, I was quite sure I was right, you yeah. know, because never in doubt, right? Yeah. But I was right. Yeah. And it was a good company that had kind of a messed up capital structure that we were able to sort out and then turn it into a good company. And then we sold that uh, company. It did well. It's still doing well. So. It's interesting, like, the the kind of balance between diversification and, like, when you know something's right and you just go all in on it, right? Because sometimes you just know and it's the right move. Yeah, talk a little about the you energy know? company because that yeah. was out of, out of left field for a, a, you know, yeah. a, a guy that had been in, when did, in mostly when structured did you finance. When uh, energy company? Uh, nine years ago. So 2014, I guess, I, I started it. And... Um, and so we, we had we had made a lot of investments in the private equity fund in transportation. So thirty billion. This is still through Fortress. Yeah, or was, well, now there's the the energy business is outside, which I'll describe. But like the background was, 
we had made all these investments. We had a couple of partners there that, that are really talented guys that had bought, they spent $30 billion equity in transportation. So mm-hmm. with $30 billion, you own some of everything. So ships, right. planes, trucks, trains, chassis, ports, you name it, they owned it. And of course, one of the big expenses in the transportation business is fuel. And so um, in 2012, so two years before I started the business, I, I saw this chart and I printed it out and I carried it around with me. Mm-hmm. It was a single piece of paper and it showed the relationship between natural gas and oh, yeah. oil over a long period of time. Yeah. And they kind of moved together in a real kind of lockstep for, you know, 30 years. And then in 2006, they split apart and oil went to like $145 a barrel and gas went down. And I'm like, this is a big deal. I'm not sure what this really means, but this seems like a really big deal. And I'm not a, an oil and a gas person at all. And I live in New York, not, you know, Houston, but I'm, <laughs> I think this is a big deal. So, um, and so to make a long story short, I said, look, the the application I can see for it is let's take the train that we owned in Florida at the time, the Florida East Coast Railway, mm-hmm, the, the Interflyer mm-hmm, train, mm-hmm. and let's convert that from burning diesel to burning natural gas. And to make a very long story short, we did. And so basically we, you know, got, you know, GE to make new locomotives for us that were natural gas. We got the FRA, the Railroad Administration, to let us, like, uh, you know, burn gas on the railroads. We had to design tender cars to do it. So I do all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And at uh, the, the, the very end, there's only one problem. There's no liquefied natural gas in Florida, like not a drop. And the process to take natural gas and turn it into liquefied natural gas is just freezing it. Mm-hmm. If you fl- if freeze it to 263 below zero, it basically goes from a liquid to a gas. It concentrates at 600 times. You can then, without having to compress it, you can take it around. And when you want to use it, you just heat it up and it burns, right? So, um, but I couldn't get anybody to make the uh, uh, to, to build the, the LNG liquefier for us, even though we had a spot for it. So then I decided, you know, I'm going to do it myself. And uh, have some really good guys I work with, and we did, and it paid for it, and that's how it all started. And so when we had the LNG, then all of a sudden you have you have the gas. But in the U.S., there's not really a use for it. Transportation would be a use, like all the trains. My view should burn it. It's mm-hmm. a lot cheaper than diesel, mm-hmm. a lot cleaner than diesel. But you look at the United States, about less than one percent of our electricity comes from oil. So it comes from natural gas and coal and nuclear, hydroelectric, whatever. When you get outside the United States, virtually all of it is oil. It's in emerging markets. So the first place we went was the Bahamas. We couldn't get those guys to make a deal. But then we went to Jamaica. And Jamaica basically had, like a lot of these countries, they, their entire electrical system was run by oil, which is expensive and it's dirty and it's volatile. It's all these things. And so they had a – there's a power plant in the north in Montego Bay. And uh, it was built as a dual fuel plant in 2001, had never run natural gas. And so we went in in 2015 and I said uh, – We'll build the infrastructure to import gas, and you just buy the gas from us. And so I went there 27 times uh, <laughs> between January and August mm-hmm. and, uh, and convinced these guys to, to pick us. Now, there's this one really pivotal moment. There's this guy that was running the process. He's this really great, old, tough Jamaican engineer who I got to know and, and became good friends with. I had a lot of respect for him. And at the very end, he said, you know, um, he basically pulled me aside to tell me we weren't going to get the, this deal. And he's like, look— you know, um, you know, we've come to really respect you and like you, and I appreciate how hard you worked on this. But like, um, how can I really pick you when there's like Shell and there's British Petroleum? These big companies are in the room with us. And I said, I don't know. Let me ask you a question. I said, What that? I said, um, Have you met Mr. Shell? 
Yeah, Mr. VP, because those would be handy guys to know. Because <laughs> if it didn't work out, you could call, pick up the phone and call Mr. Shell, and he could make it happen. And I said, now that woman over there, she's not Mr. Shell, uh-huh. right? She's like a, seems like a perfectly lovely, you know, smart person, but she doesn't commit the firm. Mm-hmm. And I said, but I'm Mr. New Fortress Energy. If you call me, I guarantee you I'll do what I said I was going to do and make it happen. And so it, was a pretty, it must have been a pretty persuasive argument because <laughs> they picked us. Mm-hmm. And that's how it all started. And so from a standing start there, um, we then basically got in the, in the middle of energy transition everywhere. And really what drives the whole thing is that, you know, there's massive energy inequity in the world. So access to energy is not at all democratic. So the example I always use, so Jamaicans use about 10% as much electricity as Americans do per capita. Wow. Kenyans use about 10% as much electricity as Jamaicans. So the average person in East Africa uses in a year what you and I use in three days. Wow. That's, that's the actual situation. Crazy. And so we said, like, let's go after that. And so we've then, you fast forward, we now have, it's about a $10 billion company or something like that. It's basically, we've got terminals in, two in Jamaica, one in Puerto Rico, one in Mexico, Nicaragua, a couple in Brazil, hopefully one soon in Ireland. And really it's all about kind of bringing in cheaper, cleaner energy to these places and mm-hmm. doing everything ourselves. And so we earn a good, a good, a good, a good living doing it, but we do a lot of good, right? So what did you invest in this company to begin with? Or buy it for you bought it or you started it started started, started from scratch wow. i think the initial investment was like 68 million dollars or something like that and so and still me and my family still own about 40 percent of it so it's mm-hmm. whatever it's it's obviously been a pretty good return what, what's interesting is and you, you i think we'll hear this with a lot of guests west made a lot of money in a lot of things but fortress which he was really known for right he's made more money personally in new fortress energy than in fortress yeah. And so it's often the thing after the thing yeah. where you've got you honed your skills and you're even that much more focused and you have more of your own capital to put in. Yeah. Right. I remember there was a big argument. He was like, ah, I've been managing so much money for other people. And, yeah, it's great that you get a 20 percent promote. Uh, so you get 20 percent of the profits after a certain threshold of earnings. But, man, it'd be nice to use most of my own capital or our own capital, partners capital and make the money that way. And and of course. The first frickin' bullet he fired. And unfortunately, the only thing I didn't invest with him on <laughs> wasn't just an elephant, it was a dinosaur. <laughs> he had multiple chances, Mike. Uh, yep, yeah, yep, yep, yep. So. Yeah, he said that 600 times. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it's really it's an interesting case because I think that you know, the investment management business is a wonderful business. So whether you're building apartments or you're managing a hedge fund or you're managing a private equity fund, and if you come, as I did, from pretty modest means, it's a way to actually, like, make some real something for yourself, right? But so you take in capital, you take the obligation really seriously. We all did. Other people's money, you earn, mm-hmm. you know, the, the management fee, a performance fee, if it works out, you get paid. That's great. That said, very little kind of great wealth in the world happens from being diversified. Mm-hmm. When you look at the great fortunes around the world, the Jeff Bezos and the, you know, Bill Gates and the Elon Musks, they, they may have a couple of things. Yeah. They may just have one thing. And so, and I always had this orientation, you know, from a long time ago that, you know, I wanted to do it for myself. And actually, it was about that point in time, it was probably about eight or nine years ago, I just said, you know what, um, this has been great, but I don't want to do this anymore, this being managing the funds. I, I'd rather just, like, be focused on a thing. And, and that's what it's really been. So I, and, and, and ironically, it, it seems a lot more rewarding to me. It seemed, it's been a lot, I've made a lot more money, that, not that that's the be all and end all, but it certainly worked out that way. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like it gives you so much more of a clarity and focus on it. And I just, but it's important to pick things that you think are actually great and then be right about that. Right. That's helpful. But Wes, one thing that is so clear just talking to you is that the, the driving DNA 
that comes out of you is curiosity, right? Diving in, understanding a problem, getting excited about building a natural gas, you know, converter uh, or, you know, a sports team and like figuring out how to how to take the bucks from there to the championship. Um, where did that curiosity come from? Was it, you know, were you always a curious kid or is it reading? Was it? I think it was reading. I, I, I you know, and I, and people ask me for advice all the time and I say, I'm not capable of giving advice to anybody, but I would, I would tell you is that, um, I think one of the, the poisons of the social, you know, media stuff is it's a, it's kind of a sugar high mm-hmm. where, you're, where you're flipping through an Instagram, or yeah. you're flipping through a Twitter thing and, that, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But you are far more likely to have a real conversation with somebody on the basis of a book you read, yeah, um, and something which is more meaningful. Yeah. And you know, and that's and that's and I could give you a hundred examples of that. And so, as, yeah. as a big reader, you know, and I still read all the time, yeah. right? And you yeah, just Wes's like, office was yeah. filled with books, yeah, and because I travel all the time, I read all the time, and that's yeah, you know, I re- I read a lot too. Dave reads and, a lot. And I was always I I think that deep thinking is so important. And I I was always I mean having known Wes since uh, mid two thousands and being on the board of Fortress with you guys, just the capacity to take all these disparate elements from things you read here, something that happened in history, something you read, you know, and stitch them together. You know, I saw that many times in the businesses you built, including Fortress Energy. I think it's really interesting how you can like deep think, put all that together, and then come up with this idea, and then. Most importantly, he really executes it too. I mean, when Wes gets an idea, and again, they don't all work out. Not every assumption we make what is, was the baby is. is like the birthing centers. I think yeah, did all right, yeah, but yeah. didn't. Yeah, yeah but yeah. but um, but yeah, but but always there's a lot of execution. Man, it's not just an idea. It's like yeah. I mean, to build for New Fortress Energy to where you did. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of infrastructure, people, human capital, actual capital. Yeah, I mean, we built seven billion dollars in infrastructure. Yeah. You know, you know, it's crazy. I always like tell people like my success is like me failing 90 times and succeeding probably eight. And hopefully I got a couple more successes left, right? <laughs> How many times you would say you have failed versus succeeded? You know, I've had if you I've had a I've had a lot of failures. I mean, I tried to do stuff that hasn't worked out. I mean, I think um, a lot more than successes. You know, I've had a couple of like significant successes. There's mm-hmm. a couple things. You know, Mike mentioned the cell tower stuff. That was something I kind of came mm-hmm. up with independently. Mm-hmm. That was a good idea. Um, the the energy stuff is a good idea. My train, so my passenger Bright train, line. the yeah. first first passenger train built since Henry Flagler himself. So it, it actually goes to Orlando next two weeks from today. I think two weeks tomorrow. So it's it's just about ready to go. That's I think, and and it, that's not a success yet, but I think I'm quite sure that it will be. But uh, first first train. In America, passenger train in America built with private money since 1894. 1894. Yeah. It's, been, yeah. it's been a while. Some of that was my money, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, and, and, and literally, the inspiration for that was a book. I, re- I read this book. Uh, it was called Last Train to Paradise. I met the author the other day. which was a terrific guy, uh, Les. And, you know, it was a, a story about uh, Henry Flagler, who was an amazing guy. Henry Flagler, John mm-hmm. Rockefeller, mm-hmm. business partners. They, they worked in the same office together in Cleveland, Ohio for, mm-hmm. I don't know, 12 years, back-to-back. Two richest guys, Standard, own Standard Oil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, uh, so Flagler apparently went to Florida. His wife was sick with what they think is tuberculosis. She got sick. He came back. And about the same age that I started all this stuff, it was about, maybe that's maybe that's the midlife, you know, uh, decision time. But mm-hmm. and he said, like, I'm going to do something different. Went to Florida, started building the train, built the train that went all the way down, not only to Miami, but all Key the West. way to Key West. 
And it really is like responsible for the development of Florida. I mean, mm -hmm. it's amazing. Thing. So it's you crazy. know what's interesting? I, I went hunting in Thomasville, Georgia. A friend of mine has a big quail hunting ranch in Thomasville. And everyone in Thomasville said, all the Vanderbilts, the, all the big wealthy families from New York would come down to Thomasville for the, the summer because Florida was too far. And it wasn't until the train got built that Florida became Florida from, uh, you know, New Yorker going to Florida for the summer. So it's funny when you was before you even said the train thing, I was thinking you're giving me Rockefeller vibes. <laughs> like, did you read a lot on him and how he started his dynasty? Was yeah, was I've did he inspire you at all? Yeah, I mean, look, I he, mean, he didn't own a basketball team, but no, <laughs> well, he you know he's he's his family's responsible for Jackson Hole being as pristine yeah, as it yeah. is. No yeah, way, really. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Rockefeller like family basically bought uh, the the story is they bought. Jackson Hole, the most of the valley, sight unseen, and put it into trust. Mm -hmm. And that's why Jackson looks like Jackson and not like Park City. Right. Nothing wrong with Park City, but there's a lot of development there. Yeah. Jackson, something like 90% of the land is in trust. And it's yeah. over Rockefeller. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's yeah. a great biography on Rockefeller I read. One of the famous biographies. Yeah. Did you read it? You probably read it, too. Well, the the, the, the best biography uh, in business I've read is called The Prize, which is the history of yes. oil. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Daniel Juergen. Amazing, amazing book. Because it's really a story of the you know 19th and 20th century. Yeah. Right? And and obviously Rockefeller being at the middle of that. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, I, 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 I can't say I tried to, like, emulate anybody. I just, I just wanted to make, you know— Things happen, and and I am a curious person. The bucks, so, so well, you know, yeah, like there's. What made you buy the bucks? Bi well, businesses are in general fun-ish, but sports teams are fun. Fun. So you're, talk you're about fun. the journey of when the you're bucks. winning. When you're winning. Yeah. yeah you and know. when did you buy the bu bucks? Uh, about nine and a half years ago. Worst team in the league, right? Was it the worst, worst team in the league? Worst team in the league. The last We're, cheap team. Worst team in the league. Which was the team at the time? Uh, we paid $550 million, which at the time was the highest price ever paid. We had that distinction for about two weeks before uh, Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers for $2 billion. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. things started to change. And uh, But, you know, uh, you know, Adam Silver, who became the commissioner of the NBA just about the same time I became an owner, one of the first things you know he asked me is he said, you know, what, you know, what about it in Milwaukee? What about the Bucks in particular? And I'm like... I'm sorry, is there another team for sale? I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of a joke, but the reality is they trade very infrequently, right? So they're not available long. It's not that far from here. I mean, my mom you know, was raised in Wisconsin, so I had a little bit of family root. But it was just really, you know, it was a franchise that obviously had a lot of history, had a lot of success with Oscar Robinson and, and of course, you know, Kareem. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the worst team in the league. And as bad as the record was, it probably was worse than that when you really got into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it what did you feel like when you guys won that championship? It was great. I tell you, so we bought the team. We had we got all the people together, and I and I said to everybody, look, um, our goal, my goal, is to win a championship. Period. Not to be better. Not to. And we're not going to use an excuse for a small market team or whatever else. And I said, and if there's anybody in the room here that doesn't believe that that's a reasonable thing, now you should quit, because if you're still here and I find that you still feel that way, I'll fire you. Because I can't, we can't have that and try to build a championship culture if people are trying to make excuses out of it. Because, and at the time, I think uh, the NBA Finals that year, I think three of the four teams in the la of the last four were small market teams. So, you know, San Antonio is not a big market. Golden State was not a big market at one point. So, uh, so we thought, you know, let's let's do this. And, you know, and and like any other business, if you hire the right people, you give them, you know, resources, you give them responsibility, and then you hold them accountable. And then of course, you know, get a little bit lucky. Mm -hmm. So, I'm in hip hop and other things, right? But 
Do you know your daughter has one of the most legendary hip hop moments ever, and probably basketball moments? Just the Drake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's so, funny. She's a. I love she, her. She's, uh, she, she's got a big sense of humor, but she's got a real presence to her too. So. Toronto was playing the Bucks, um, and Pusha T and Drake was beefing, like serious music beef, and she sat there courtside with a fucking Pusha T t-shirt on. <laughs> and that was the moment. I mean, shit, she probably blew up the bucks from that because that went viral. It was everywhere. Yeah, It was like, it's still like one of the craziest moments and in hip hop. And I had no She's idea. a legend for that, by the way. Pusha T. So when did you hear that, like, that moment? When did you find out what that really was? I mean, I found out, like, I knew when she took off her jacket and she had this T-shirt, right? And, and I didn't really know what the T-shirt was for, but then, I, then she got a lot of attention for it, and I, so I knew it was something. And, uh, and and she's got a big sense of humor. She's a, she's, a, she's, a, she's a tremendous kid. All my kids are. But it was it was really fun. So that was one of the most legendary moments in hip-hop created by your family. Talk yeah. about, so you grew up in Montana. There are not a lot of black people. No. <laughs> no. And now you we gotta get some black people in Montana. Yeah. But you own a basketball team, like yeah. the the the. It's an interesting transition when you come because you go back to Jackson Hole. I mean, we brought Mella. He was the only black guy on the mountain when we yeah. <laughs> was there. Yeah, actually, uh, have, that's in true. some ways, we have this very racially integrated country, and mm-hmm. in other places, there's not. But how did did that ever even cross your mind, or was it just like? Yeah, it didn't. I I really feel like people in this country have far more in common than they have separate. I mean, for all the crazy politics we have, like if you sat in a diner in the middle of Missouri or the middle of Montana or the middle of Oregon, the people in that diner, you know, black, white, yellow, green, whatever, right, all these different races and ethnic backgrounds, whatever, I think they would have far more in common. And I really believe that they want a couple things. They want... You know, they want a better life for their kids than for themselves. I think that they want to be able to provide a living for their, you know, for their family. And and I think and they want to be respected and, you know, have their, their views, you know, treated as seriously as anybody else. I, I really believe that. And so and so I, I didn't grow up in a place where there was a, a lot of diversity. Right. Montana is a very white place. But my parents were were uh, were both very you know, just very kind of libertarian, you know, a little bit conservative, but they just really believe that, you know, people are people. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you look at it and our experiences, you know, with the Bucks and the and the guys that I've got had the good fortune of, you know, getting to know, they come from pretty different backgrounds, right? You know, the, you know, the story of Giannis, which is an amazing story. And, the, you know, the story of Chris Middleton is an amazing story. And there's like, you know, Drew Holiday, all these guys, they have different backgrounds, but they're just people just like anything else. And so I try to treat everybody the same way. And um, and it's it's and it's worked pretty well. Well, you so. look at the success of the Bucks. I mean, Giannis is a global superstar now. When you're thinking about coach and GM and like, what was the mat? Like, was there one thing that you needed to get right, or was it a combination of getting it all together? You know, it's like it's like four. It's really the it's it's like any the business. There's the coach. There's the general manager who's responsible for finding the players. There's the head of sports science, which actually I'll take the credit for. This guy, Troy Flanagan, who's our head of sports science, PhD, astrophysics, head of sports science, the ski team, a really amazing guy. Those are, the, those are the most important people. And they have to operate as a team. And they have to be independent and have their own accountabilities, whatever. But they, you know, 
the the general manager can find the players. The coach has got to play them, and the you know the sports science guy and, and folks have got to keep them healthy. Mm-hmm. And so there, there really is a real teamwork to the whole thing. And you know we made some mistakes early on um, that I, I don't really need to kind of belabor. <laughs> but uh, but I feel like uh, you know we we did more things right than wrong, and then we attracted the people that we wanted to play. And it's a look, it's a team sport that is really dominated by individuals. So it's mm-hmm. a I think it's the hardest sport statistically to win a championship in because your best player on any team can play, uh, you know, twenty percent of the game. He's he's he can play the whole game. He's one fifth of the of the guys in the court. So, and, and, you know, Tom Brady, as good as he is, he's only going to play on the offensive side. Mm-hmm. And he's one of 11 guys and whatever. That's why in the basketball you get these, these periods where Michael Jordan or, you know, Magic Johnson or, you know, you know or Larry Bird that had real success because they were so dominant as a small part of it. Mm-hmm. And we're fortunate to have Giannis, but we have a lot more than Giannis, right? There's a, there's a, lot, a lot of really talented guys in the team. Do you uh, – and you also have Aston Villa, right? Yep. So two different types of sports teams. Yep. Um, very different running those two businesses. Is it? Is there a lot you learned from the Bucks? You had them a few years before you got yeah, Aston Villa, think, right? That's helped uh, you with that. It's it's a really good question. I think that the the, the so- football soccer is an amazing sport. It's truly the worldwide sport. Cause I I I go around the world and meet with a lot of you know people in these different countries, and it could be a prime minister, an energy minister, whatever. The first half hour of every conversation is not the Bucks; it's Aston Villa. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! They, they care about Premier League. They really do. It's mm-hmm, a big, mm-hmm. big brand. And also, the players are from everywhere. Yeah. And they and people really identify. So if you're in you know, South Africa, and we had a Zimbabwe player, you know, Marvelous Nakamba. They all want to talk about Marvelous. Or if you're in Brazil, because we've got big I want to be named Marvelous. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hell of a name. Uh, we want to be Thor, too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in Brazil, we have, just have a couple of very talented, you know, Brazilian players that play for us. They all want to talk about your players. So it's a really interesting—that part of it creates a lot more diversity uh-huh. and more challenges, frankly, because, um, you know, one of the very famous uh, managers told me when at one point we were talking about this. He's like, look, there's the— Europeans and there's the Africans and there's the South Americans and then there's the you know the the, the other people whether it's you know Koreans U.S. whatever mm-hmm. and you don't have to have all of them love you but you have to have at least a couple of them mm-hmm. right because it's really those are yeah. usually diverse you know audiences yeah. so it's yeah. it's more complicated in that regard uh-huh. it's a beautiful game it's hard but I feel the same thing is that when we've gotten it right with you know the the general manager which is obviously called the sporting director the coach which is called you know the manager mm-hmm. you get those guys right and you have a much much better chance uh-huh. do, do you think messi can pull it off bringing the the msl 100% in, into the big leagues or is it just going to be i i think <sighs> i think uh, i think he's an extraordinary uh, character at an extraordinary time in the right place he's an argentinian in miami Right, yeah. um, which is close to the United dressed States. in pink, dressed in <laughs> brilliant idea. And so, uh, I, look, I think um, the the amount of like attention and fame he's gotten is so deserved. And I don't know him at all, but uh, I know Jorge Moss, the guy who is the uh, the principal owner of Miami, who's a wonderful guy. And I think they've really done it the right way. And uh, I think that's terrific. You know, the fact is though is that the MLS is probably the eighth or ninth or tenth best league in the world, not the first league in the world. Yeah. And they probably need to make some real structural changes if you want to be better. And I think, like, as Americans, of course, we don't really want to be, like, the best, like, ninth-place team in the world, right? You want to be as good as the Premier League. And there's there's still a long ways to go. But I'm a, I'm a big, big uh, bull on uh, U.S. football. I think we have the World Cup coming here in a couple of years, which is really exciting. And we have more and more and more better players. But the better players tend to, like, pick up and then go to Europe and play because that's where the competition is, is better. So it's part them. money and but part competition as well. 
It is, and it's you know, and the money still dominates. And then, and the the money stuff is really hard because they're they don't have the same kind of spending caps that you do. So, like the what what makes sports leagues great is competition. Mm -hmm. And so, the NFL's got a hard cap, Mm -hmm. and so you can be the worst team in the league and three years later go to the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. That's what Cincinnati did, right? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. In in English football, you know, because you have. You know, the, these national funds, Abu yeah. Dhabi and, you know, Saudi Arabia and whatever, they, they've got more resources and the spending limits are a lot looser and that creates a less level playing field. Right. And so that's that's probably the only negative. I think that's something they need to really address. Mm-hmm. But that said, the level of competition is super high. Right. And so you watch, if you watch as much football as I do, yeah. you know, it's it's quite a different level. So I think Messi is great and I've watched, I've watched him play a, you know, a bunch of games because, you know, who doesn't want to see Messi, you know, play? But the level at the MLS still has got a ways to go to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Question, if you could be president for a day, what would you change or do different? Boy, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd want to make it a pretty long day. There's a few times. <laughs> make it a long day. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that what the country lacks a little bit right now is kind of a cohesive policy, a cohesive economic policy, a cohesive energy policy. So like, what's the energy policy of the U.S.? I couldn't really tell you. And I'm in the energy business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, people don't want to talk about it, but like we spend more money than we take in right now. So they just downgraded the U.S. debt. So like, you know, if you spend more money than you take in, it's not going to end up very well. And same with me, right? It's no different with the country. So I, I feel like we've kind of lost the narrative of like, what we're actually trying to accomplish through all the you know interesting rivalry and whatever else. Mike always has this amazing you know perspective on the market. So if, ever, if I'm ever being asked to talk about something in the markets, I always call Mike up and get advice mm-hmm. on this series because he's got a great great mind for actually trying to sift through all this to see it. But to me, you know, there's there's not really a cohesive set of policies on any level, mm-hmm. and because it becomes very you know rivalrous with the one group versus another. And I don't think that the Democrats are great and the Republicans are, are terrible or vice versa. I think, again, I think people have a lot more in common than they have different. But the way that we're kind of manifesting that now is just not that productive. Yeah, I had dinner with Princess Bandar, who's the Saudi Arabian ambassador to the United States. But she grew up in McLean, Virginia. Her father, Prince Bandar, had been the ambassador for years. And so she's she's at least half, you know, U.S. DNA, but very Saudi. And she said, it's so much easier governing Saudi right now because every citizen, every woman, every man, every young person, every old person knows where we're pulling. Mm-hmm. They know the direction our country is going. They know what their part of that mission is. And so she said, it really is just so refreshing. And you come to the U.S. and it's exactly what you said. It's We got people heading on <laughs> in 64 different directions. I mean, that said, though, it's the greatest country in the world. I mean, I'm a red-blooded American. I really believe that. It's an amazing place. And for all the... You know, inequities and the things that could be better, you can grow up on a ranch in Montana and end up here, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you got to get lucky and you got to show up early and stay late and, mm-hmm. and do all those things. You Senator, Senator, Senator Sounds like you're running for president right now. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, if you want to announce it, here, do no, it. No, I, I really do. I think, it's, I think it's the greatest country in the world. I, I, I agree with but, you. But I, but I do worry that actually we've kind of lost, you know, the ability to agree on things. Yeah. Would you ever think about politics? Nah, I wouldn't be the right guy for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wouldn't be the right guy. You got that folksy charm, though. Yeah. <laughs> so. Mel, Mel, for, Mel should be a politician. Yeah, that's right. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Tell Wes your story a little bit. Yeah. You know, I don't think he knows it. Um, shit, we said it on like four episodes, but I'll tell Wes. I grew up in Trinidad. Uh, came here when I was 12. Mom got lupus uh, when I was 14. Dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Um, 
had to kind of figure things out, got evicted uh, maybe eight, seven, eight times before I was 18, 19 from my mom being sick. Just kind of like believed in music. That was my passion. I had a passion for music and a focus for music. So I just kind of like started going by these labels, handing out CDs for artists I would try to manage. Somebody listened to me one day. And then I ended up uh, getting my first record deal for artists. That didn't really work out. Um, but I got my foot in the door. Years later, found a couple other groups that did well, became the senior vice president at A&R. Senior Vice President <laughs> at Republic Records, which was like the number one label, and took that money that I made from that and invested in a bunch of different things along with Mike Dave. I'm the largest black franchise owner of Bojangles now. Um, invest in a ton of stuff with these guys, do real estate now, um, at Warner Records now, and yeah, trying to, with my own label. And I'm the first guy from the hood on the border Robin Hood now. I love that. <laughs> so, Man, I tell you, the, this, the, the thing that the really American dream. The thing that resonates me from that story is that you know, I, and, and I do really believe this. Like, find something you care about, mm -hmm. and then you're gonna you're gonna the likelihood you're successful is just so much higher. Yeah. Now, as the example, so Michael Dell, who has obviously been one of the most successful guys in our life, yeah. asked the question. So, last weekend, Labor Day, mm -hmm. do you think that Michael Dell read anything about computers that day? <laughs> yes. I mean, because he's like, it's not a job to him. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, if he's yeah, listening yeah. to this, he may say, yeah, I didn't read anything. Like, <laughs> but, but he's like so crazed yeah. about it. And one thing has led to another. And, and again, having a good idea is one thing. Having a good idea and executing on it, yeah. right, which is your, yeah. your music. But then how do you turn that in? How does that manifest itself? That really, really resonates with me. Because I think yeah. that is the American dream. Right. right? Yeah. That's cool. We talk a lot about uh, networks. Right, especially when you think about underserved communities, how can they build networks? How can they move into networks where they are shown opportunity? Uh, I remember when, when you were buying the 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 bucks, I was like, you know, and I'd gone to the dinner of all the football owners, and I kind of looked around. They were kind of stodgy Midwesterners, and I was like, doesn't seem to be a fun group, but basketball <laughs> owners yeah. is one hell of a group of owners. Why didn't you buy that team with them? Yeah, it's two, two, two <laughs> dumb decisions. Oh, for two. Oh, for two. Oh, for two. Wait, I was like, it's both of them to get in the bucks, too. Yeah, we had a deal. We had a deal. Yeah. Yeah. So you could, you could get in any yeah. deal. Albert, Albert, both The of them. only two things I did invest in were two of his best investments. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> so the next time Mike passes on an investment, let oh, me know and me, <laughs> me and Dave invest in it. No, you're right. I mean, the, the, so the uh, network, talk about that network. I, seems I, think, fun. I, I think the, uh, so there's 30 owners, obvious principal owners in the league and it's a great group. And there's a couple that are, you know, are less great, but on balance, it's been an amazing group. Um, we started tequila out of that business. Yeah. So uh, Michael Jordan and uh, Wick Grossbeck and Jeannie Buss are all good friends and really great owners. Right? Sincoro, plug. Sincoro, Sincoro yeah. plug. Jordan just sold his team, right? He did. Yeah, yeah He yeah. did. And, I, and I'm sad to see him go, right? Uh, he's uh, he's an amazing, you know, amazing basketball player, I mean, an amazing person, and he's been a great partner. Not a good partner, but a great partner. And we have this great tequila. But that's that, that, and that just grew out of, like, having, you know, good people in the room. And it's a very engaged group. And it's, I think, a... 
You know, the the NBA, I think, is a great organization. I, you know, I, I didn't know David Stern that well. I met him a few times, and he was the guy when they really kind of, like, got the thing, you know, up to a level. Mm-hmm. Adam Silver has been done a tremendous job, in my mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's just like he is so protective of the brand and has great vision about how you grow the, the sport. And also the thing I think that is great about the NBA is they're not afraid to embrace change. Mm-hmm. Right? So you think about it 30 years ago or whatever, there's no three-point line. Yeah. No shot clock. I mean, like, think of the mm-hmm. things that changed in the mm-hmm. college and NBA, you know, in the basketball that made it a much better sport. And they're constantly mm-hmm. trying to innovate and do that. And I think that's a that's metaphor smart. for life, I'm too, p- right? I'm, I'm pitching yeah. a ten-and-a-half-foot hoop. It's, it's just too easy to dunk. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can dunk. Except you can't dunk. You can't dunk. Can't dunk. <laughs> not going to say it. <laughs> you can't dunk. I can't even play basketball. There's no sport I could play. Just for the record. But, but networks are important, you know, whether it's the NBA owner's network or, you know, whatever. I, th- I think it's really important to success, right, to, like, pursue those networks. Not to necessarily have one, but, like, right, to build your network, right? Because we're yeah. just talking about all these opportunities, and so many of them are just because you know me and I know what, you know, and, and they expose well, you. Because you well, knew us and you yeah. didn't. I, you know, <laughs> Pete Brigger and I were classmates at, well, you know, at, at, at Princeton, Princeton and then yeah. at Goldman. Pete and Wes were rivals in the in the mortgage market, rivals, collaborators. Yeah. And Wes called Pete uh, when he was leaving Goldman. Pete brought me along, and that's how I got involved with, again, yeah. network. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I feel that the Even network, the guy who told you, go to Wall Street, right? Yeah. That was Just one some form of network. You know, it's like I think that the value of a network, everyone talks about, like, the great decisions that came out of it. Sometimes I think the best things are if you have an idea, you talk to somebody you trust, and they're like, that's a, that's a horrible idea. Yeah. yeah. That's and, true. And, you know, it, it's almost more important, right. I think, of the things you don't do. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because you can right. get very vested in whatever else. And, and if I was looking to, to build some piece of real estate, I'd call you know, Dave up and say, what are you doing? He, yeah. If he said no, uh, I might disagree with that, but I would think about it pretty hard. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. really expert at it. Right? Yeah. So that's, I think that's a really, really good point. Yeah. So the point of this whole show, we came up with it because we all come from, like, different backgrounds. I come from nothing, made it somewhere. Hopefully I'll make it to... But you at one day, I will. Mike comes from um, middle class. Dave Barry was born rich. He doesn't like to admit. <laughs> when uh, a black guy, a Jewish guy, a white guy, and we just always bring on some kind of entrepreneur from some different walk of life. We brought on guys from my walk of life. You and Mike kind of came up in finance together. And just so people could see and understand that you can make it from any different walk of life, right? Mm-hmm. And what's your advice for like a young entrepreneur that is going into finance or or a guy that was born, you know, really, really poor or someone that was born rich, really rich, like yeah. Dave Barry. <laughs> like, right, right. But yeah, like if you had to... I think, I think high on the list is curiosity. And I think it's really, it's really, really important to make sure that you properly define success. It's probably the biggest mistake I see people move that you make. So, you know, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say that you were passionate about the food business, and you said, "I'm going to be in the food business." And I'm like, "What are you doing, Melon?" You're like, "I'm going to open a corner deli." I'm like, "That's a terrible idea." Mm-hmm. Because it's it's not that it's a terrible idea to run the deli, but it's like it's a pretty small thing, and you know you could you could fail in that pretty pretty easily. Like 
if you really want to be in the food business, don't be in the corner deli. Go be Ron Burkle and be in the in the supermarket business, right? So he, they're both in the food business, but you're kind of properly defining what success really is. And I think that, you know, because the, w- the way I look at it, I'm an optimistic person, and I'll say, we're going to do these 12 things in a row, and they may be super hot. If they all work out, we should make a trillion dollars because it's really hard to do those 12 things. And then if they don't all work out, you can still do really well. I think too many times people say, we're going to do these like 12 really, really difficult things. We're going to make $126. I'm like, that's a horrible idea. Right. So like you have to like, so aim really high. That's yeah, one well, of the But also pick, pick, something that's really, yeah. pick something that's really scalable. I, I tell you, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we talked about that. Like the, I, I think I'll, I'll give you my new piece of advice. Like these diet drugs, right? The Wegovi and Materno, you know, whatever. I think that the biggest innovation in healthcare in my lifetime, and mm-hmm. that's a strong statement, but it's what I really think. 50% of Americans are obese. Mm-hmm. Obesity is directly linked to like much higher cancer rates, you know, high like cholesterol, it's like yeah. boss. And everybody, like two thirds of all women are on a diet and one third of all men. I mean, like mm-hmm. everyone's trying to, but these drugs really give you a chance to get on, you know, onto it. And if they, they there's a, there was a, uh, a cover article on, on The Economist maybe four months ago that said by 2030, they think that drug class could be bigger than the, all the cancer drugs in the world combined. Wow. And so, and I think like, I, and so my take on it is like, uh, we're going to do something with the bucks you know, within the city of Milwaukee, I think, to try to bring those drugs for free, you know, and raise capital, put in a bunch of our own money to do so, to give people access mm-hmm. to it. Because I think it's like, a huge thing. If you can help somebody lose a bunch of weight and then you introduce the nutrition and the exercise to make it lifestyle changes, you can really change the outcome of their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, if I told you that there was a chronic disease in the United States that afflicts 50% of the people, you'd say, man, if I could fix that problem, that would be a pretty big win. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what this is what it is. Mm-hmm. I am throwing the one caution out. If you're on those drugs, you've got to exercise a lot because you lose muscle mass as fast as you lose fat. Well, now, if you're obese, that doesn't matter because you don't have that much muscle mass. But if you're so we're, not that obese. So we're, we're doing – so the guy that runs sports science for us, you know, went on the drugs, lost a bunch of weight. He's a scientist, PhD, astrophysics. So he went ahead and he's, he's really come up with this regimen about exactly this, the, the, the nutrition and exercise yeah. that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. That I think is a life-changing thing. I Pro- really do. I think, I, th- I think it actually could literally change the vector of healthcare in this country because you know, the two big markers of disease are age and weight. Mm-hmm. And so if we eliminate one of them, we've gone a long ways towards doing something really, really meaningful. And so that, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying this, this is some big economic opportunity for me because I'm not really viewing it that way. I think it's a big opportunity to actually have a real impact. And there probably is a big economic opportunity as well for, for, for a lot of people on it. So. so, Wes, we were kidding when we got in here. We're, let's assume we're going to live to 100 or 90. Uh, two-thirds done, one-third ahead. Want to have a damn good last third. Yeah. Um, how do you look at the next 25, 30 years of your life? What do you want to accomplish? How do you want to feel? What do you want to do? You know, I don't know whose quote it was, but it's a great one. It's like, you know, easy to make a, uh, a buck, really hard to make a difference. And I'd like to make a difference, you know? I mean, and, and you yeah, know, the business stuff that we're doing, I enjoy a lot. If I didn't enjoy it, I'd stop doing it. So I'm not, you know, doing it for the, you know, because I need to make a living with it. I've been very, very fortunate about that. But I, I'm very focused on doing things that I think are really meaningful. And, and by the way, what's meaningful to one person is not meaningful to the next. So it's a more of a personal judgment about what that is. But I think, uh, you yeah, know, the human condition is a, is, a, is a challenging one. And so if you can help people out, 
that's a that's a big win. If you can do something like I'm I'm building these trains, right? I think we're going to build the first high speed rail in America from you know Vegas to L.A. here, right? And hopefully, you know, one day there will be hundreds of these trains in the United States. And so I'm not doing it because I think it's going to be good on a you know an obituary or something. I'm just doing it because I think it's interesting and what about and hydrogen? We still working with hydrogen? We are. We're building our first plant down in uh, Beaumont, Texas. I think that that's interesting, right? Splitting water into that there's it's got a long ways to go on in terms of the technology being proven um but you know a few things doing fewer things better was kind of my curiosity thing. yeah so yeah we all got curiosity yeah. and i think that's one of the things that i've taken away from everyone that came on this show that's successful they're all really curious and i think and, that's where it starts and the only place that like success is before work is in the dictionary it's like you can be as curious as you want to be, but if you want to be successful, you got to work. You got to work. Yeah. You know, and I, I think, you know, I, I talked about it with, the, you know, one of our uh, basketball players. I won't tell you which one, but we were talking about the success and whatever. And, I, and he said, I, you know, I, I feel like it all, all be taken away from me. And I'm like, well, I feel that too. And it's actually, there's a, there's a name for that. It's called imposter syndrome. It's imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think it's a real thing, you know. And it so, is a real thing. You know, and I think I was always worried that when I was on Wall Street that I wasn't good enough and they'd discover that one day. So I'd come to work at six o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think if you just, if you show up every day and you care about what you're doing, then all the other things you, that you'd like to have, hopefully some native intelligence and maybe some personal interpersonal skills and maybe a good idea once in a while. But if you just show up at work every day early and stay late yeah. and are a good person, the chances you're successful is just, in my opinion, it's just so much higher. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm going to wrap up with this. But when I, when, I was, when I look at people, young people today, when I was like at that age, right, I worked so hard because it was like, for me, it was like, this is making me. Like, I'm getting over on these guys because this work is teaching me so much, right? And instead of like looking at it, which I sometimes see, which is like, oh, like, well, I don't get paid enough for this or, you know, you know, I think that mentality of of just like do whatever you can, right? Work as hard as you can because it's really giving you the experience and the lashes to uh, to be a success later on, right? It's all yeah. this experience that's that's really put us in these positions to be so successful financially. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, every day of life is a gift, right? And yeah. so treat it that way and like don't waste your time. Yeah. So like you said, we're, you know, 60 years old and on our way to – Hopefully you live for a long time. <laughs> damn it. God damn it. One for me. But I think it's uh, it's just like, you know, be present and be purposeful in what you're trying to do. Yeah. Right? That's what that's what I hope to do. What was the listener question? We had a listener question. No, last chapter. First, I mean, one, one chapter one last what? chapter. Because beyond all that, Wes is a adventure extraordinaire. Yeah. You just went and Climbed the Vincent Massif. I did. Yeah. Wow. Highest, really? mountains. Highest mountain in uh, Antarctica. Antarctica. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little Wait, bit recently? about recently? Yeah. Like, yeah, he's done Mount Blanc. It's fucking crazy. Jaro, so mountain climbing, Rattle, skiing. Matterhorn. Oh, what, what does that bring Grand, to your life? Grand, yeah, yeah. Grand Teton a bunch of times. Give, give us two minutes on what does that bring to your life? Why do you do it? You know, I'm, I'm – uh, everyone's a product of the, where they grew up at some level, and I grew up in the mountains, so I'm happiest, you know, yeah. in those high places. And I feel like um, it's very, very helpful for people. It certainly is for me to do things that make you uncomfortable. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was out rock climbing in, uh, in Jackson because I love the Jackson. The mountains out there are great. And you always get in situations where it's a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's real, you know, you're on a rock face and there's, you know, some objective dangers and, and subjective dangers too, right, if you did something wrong. But I always feel like when I finish those things, 
um, whether it's a couple day climb with the Anarcho is a week, whether it's a couple of hard days in the mountains, um, you feel so much more present. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, if there was a drug that gave me that feeling, I would take that drug. I, it's the only way I can really just express it. It's just like you finish that, you have to be so doing what you're doing. You like shut off your phone, you take off your watch, you're just trying to look at and go from point A to point B. And I love the people that are attracted to the mountains, right? I'm blessed to have, you know, some really good friends, you know, that are, you know, great climbers and, you know, people involved in the sport. And so it's a... Shout out Jimmy Chim. We're going to get him on the podcast. All right. Yeah. Yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy just uh, had his 50th surprise party here. But Jimmy's a very... He's the guy who's director of Free Solo, right? Mm, Yeah. Among other things. He's an awesome Jackson guy. Awesome Jackson guy. Tremendous climber. But, you know, the people um, are real. I feel like that's a really good thing. The people are great, but the mountains are amazing. They're very... They don't care, right? There's no... Yeah. They have no emotion about it. (laughs) And it's not like you conquer the mountains. It's not that. And people say, oh, you know, you do it for the adrenaline. I'm like, you only have adrenaline if something's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> so like the goal, the goal is no adrenaline. Uh-huh. And everyone, there's a few moments when you climb as yeah. much as I have. But there's things that, that, that are not always perfect. But uh, it's an amazing thing. But it definitely keeps you, you know, get to up in the morning to work out and whatever else because the mountains are out there. Yeah. I'm for sure never climbing a mountain. Oh, no. Don't right. say that. Don't say I, I You're going to do the grand at one point. You're going to learn how to swim first. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to learn how to swim. <laughs> you need to learn how to swim. <laughs> All right. So um, it's been so great having Wes, and honestly, there's been so many nuggets of gold so far uh, that he's that he's shared. But at the end of uh, every one of these, we kind of ask our guests for like their ounce of gold, if you will, and uh, to leave the listeners with like, if you could give a piece of advice, kind of what's your ounce, you know, kind of takeaway ounce of gold. Um, you know, a guy that I used to work for a long time ago um, when I was when I was young and I was all full of fire and doing all this stuff, and and he gave me great advice. He's like, you know, hard on the issues, easy on the people. Life mm-hmm. is hard. Mm-hmm. And my dad used to say similar things to that, and that and that I think is really good advice because I think it's it's really easy to get focused on what you're trying to accomplish and everything else, but um, you know people will never really remember as much so much what you did. Mm-hmm. They will always remember how you made them feel. Right. And so I feel like you know be focused, and I'm you know you guys are tremendously successful and have done lots of things and whatever. But I I would I would guess that with both of you all three of you, that the impact you've had on the people as you've been doing this is at least as profound or maybe more, more profound than the successes that you've had. Mm-hmm. So kind of, hmm. you know, hard on the issues because it's like, you know, that's that's how you actually move from point A to point B. Yeah. But easy on the people because life is hard. That's, a, that's, that's my piece I of I love that. Right. I love that. Well, yeah. To put all these on the wall. Every, every time we give our guests an ounce of gold. I love that. To remember that. That's the, the best, man. Yeah. <laughs> Wes, thanks so much. We'll be back next week. Wow.